All right. We will go ahead and get started. If somebody can throw a lasso around. Somebody back there? Chad? Yeah. <laughs> My clock is actually not as fast as the one that's on the wall, so I guess I better go by the one on the wall since that's what the classes are based on too, so I should have taken that into consideration before. All right, before we get started this evening, if you'll join me in a word of prayer to our Father. Our dear and gracious and magnificent Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity during the week to come together and to worship you and to study your word and to draw closer to you and to edify one another and to just refresh and rearm before we head back out into the world. We thank you for all that you do for us with this body, the way that you configured your plan and the way that you built your, your body that comprise, is comprised of us, that we're able to benefit from that. And we do so, so much. And we cannot tell you adequately how much we appreciate the, the love that we have for one another and what being in this family means. We're so thankful for you and your son and for all that you've done for us. I ask you to be with us through this worship. Be with us every day and help us to remember you and put you first and draw others to you. And as always, forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we're continuing our class on resisting Satan. There's lots of different components that we've covered already. We've, we've gone through. I won't go through each one of those, even though I may, I may touch on a couple of aspects. And there's quite a few to come. So I'll try not to step on people's toes that are coming um, still to teach, but that's next to impossible. But anyway... I'm going to be approaching it from a little bit different direction this evening. So the class is not just about Satan, it's about resisting Satan. So, and we'll get into that and what it, what it means and what we need to know to be able to resist certain things or how we can be armed to do that. We're going to focus on an aspect this evening of how we can resist as well as why and some of the other things that, just a little bit different perspective on God's plan that might better arm us and equip us in those moments where we might be struggling in those regards, or just to give us that hope and that confidence as we go through life, which is fraught with Satan and his influences. So, and I will apologize to begin with, my, my brain is pretty fried today, so if I forget something or not, not quite tracking, I will do my best to, to try to ensure that I can, um, you know, capture what I have built out for the class. So it's going to be a little bit of lecture, but it'll be interactive as well. So I'm going to go through a little bit of stuff, setting the stage, and then I'll, I'll reach out and get some um, your thoughts. So I'm looking forward to that. And I've also structured it, so we should be just about right on time. So that includes your participation. So if you don't participate, then it'll be short. Whenever I make it for the full length, then I always end up only making it about a third of the way through. So um, anyway, we'll continue. So just looking at God's plan. So we're talking about Satan, but Satan plays a role in God's plan. We all talk about God's plan. We talk about it from different perspectives. I mean, God has a plan. That's not a surprise. The fact that it can be viewed from 
several different angles. Also shouldn't be a surprise considering the depth of the scripture and the fact that we can spend a lifetime or many lifetimes studying and, and evaluating and, and ingesting God's word and still find new components, new nuggets that he has put in there. There's no, there's no end to it. So tonight we'll be looking at the plan and the players and including the aspect of tonight's subject, which is the God of this age. So Satan as the God, lowercase g, of this age. We'll be looking at it from a macro level, mostly, but then we'll tie it back to us. Um, but I believe Satan does play a surprising role, as do we, in God's plan overall. So when you think about us in relation to God's plan, or relation to anything, we're weak. I mean, it's legitimate. We are weak fragile. I mean, we're jars of clay. We're, we're powerless over so many things that happen, so many things that we think we have control over, we have zero control over. Things that we wish we had control over, we have no hope of having any control over. It seems like, and, and when we think about our lives on a, you know, when we look at things with a clear lens, we are faced with the fact that we are powerless in most regards. We don't have any control over the vast majority of things that happen. There are very few things that we can control, and it's basically what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what I'm doing this very instant. I have control over it. That's about it. And even that is somewhat questionable at times. So we are part of God's plan, and we actually play a very important part of God's plan, but we're also faced with a very significant problem. So when we take that, that reality of who we are and what we're, what we're designed and how efficient and, and strong and, and powerful we are, which is not any of those things, and then you put it in perspective of the fact that we are faced with the God of this age. We are faced with Satan. We are faced with a power that wants us to fail. He doesn't just want us to fail, and we've talked about various aspects of that. You know, he does prowl around like a roaring lion. If you think about the reality, and throughout the ages, people, and, and it's interesting if you actually look from a historical standpoint, the way Satan was viewed in, you know, our current time, or a couple hundred years ago, or the Middle Ages, or earlier, it's really, it, it changes. It follows this, this weird sort of dynamic of, of the way Satan is actually looked at by the world. I'm not talking about Christians, you know, actual people that are in God's Word, but the culture as a whole. And especially interesting to see how he has been portrayed, um, both more realistic at other sometimes, um, very comical and, and degrading a lot of times in, in the medieval um, times. He was actually portrayed as a, as a jester, as something that was laughable. It was intentional. It was meant to be, he's, you know, wrapped up in pride, so we're going to make him something that is ridiculous. Uh, and then you have, you know, Dante's Inferno, which totally flips the script and, and, and really paints a, the wrong picture of Satan and hell and all of those things. And now a lot of those things have stuck with us for a long time. Um, the way that we either as a culture or individually, you know, envision him. Uh, Paradise Lost does a little bit better job of, of sort of bringing it back to reality, but still it's not perfect. Satan's not ruling over hell. He's not going to rule over hell. He's going to be punished in hell. He is going to pay the price for his rebellion against God. But when you think of the reality of what he is, it can be terrifying. You've got this, the most powerful being of evil that exists that wants you to die. 
not die in this life, but to die eternally, which can be pretty frightening. And as we see, as we'll, we'll touch on as we go through, he knows he's lost. He's lost the battle. He's lost himself. He's lost his rebellion. He's lost everything. But he's so vindictive and so vile and so evil that that doesn't matter. He just wants to cause God pain in any way he can. And that means every single person, every additional person that he can take, he will. Which, you know, it's hard for us to really, our definitions of evil often are encompassed. I mean, the, the now, the, the most popular way to, to prescribe that would be, you know, Hitler or Stalin or somebody like that. They are nothing compared to what we are talking about with the spiritual being that is the embodiment of evil. The most powerful force for evil that's ever existed, that can ever exist, and he's in direct opposition to you. He knows who you are. He knows what your thoughts are. He knows what your intent is. And he wants to take you from God. Which is pretty frightening when you think about it. So that is, you know, that is the challenge that we face. It's not, I mean, there's lots of other things that we think are challenges. That is the challenge that we face. But there's something that we desire. There's something that we want that those of God's family, that God's children, we want, and that's to hear a statement. Anybody guess what that statement might be? Yeah. So we want to hear that. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, at the end. That puts all the rest of this to bed. It makes it all nothing. That is where we want to be. So there's lots of challenges, and Satan is the definition of the challenge. Of course, we can bring more, we can help him. We can make things easier for him. We can actually, you know, facilitate our own challenge. But we have a goal, and we have a desire, and that is to be with God. So in order to get there, I, I truly believe that as we talked about God's plan, the better we understand the big picture, and, the, and again, there's lots of different ways that we can look at God's plan, lots of different ways that we can look at how we play into that plan, how we can either facilitate it or fight against it or what have you. But I believe by looking at it in the big picture that it can help us at times to recalibrate our minds when we're in times of, of significant challenge, whether self-induced or externally induced. So, we've been talking in this class so far, and we will continue. You know, Satan is what? I mean, he's got lots of names, and we'll talk about a few of them, but he's the adversary. He is the deceiver. He's the evil one. He's the murderer, the original murderer from the beginning. He's the father of lies, which that's an awesome one, that the way that the context is, is that used. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, the way that Christ used that particular descriptor. And he's the God of this age. He is all of those things. And each of us are brittle and weak in a temporary shell that is not meant to last. Some, some are really not meant to last. Some people suffer more, regardless of, of Satan or not, just because of the broken creation. But the fact that we know what that challenge is and that we know what we have, which is very little, but we know who is on our side, and we know that we've been empowered, that we can play an integral part in this spiritual battle. Not some esoteric theoretical battle, but a literal spiritual battle that has been going 
since the beginning, since the beginning of, slightly after the beginning of creation. It has been ongoing and it has not relented and it will not relent until there is a defined period. And we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But we can be part of that, which is pretty awesome. You know, just as it's, it's 180 degrees out from the we're weak and, and you know, terrified at what we're facing to we're empowered to face it. So there, there's, a, there's a lot of really neat stuff that can come into play there, that can help us. So we can do something for God, which is pretty awesome as well. You know, we think of God, as, I mean, he is all powerful. What we do, we can do something for God. And we'll talk about that specifically in relation to Satan. So we're all engaged in this spiritual battle. And it is epic. And you don't have a choice. You have to pick a side. By not picking a side, you pick a side. You can pick the easy side. You can pick the hard side. You can choose to fight for God. You can choose to fight for the God of this age. You can choose to be part of the fight for good or part of the aim to destroy, to, you know, to destroy as many people as possible. So this has been clearly demonstrated since the beginning of Scripture. And it's clearly demonstrated at the very end of Scripture as well, what that plays out to be. It didn't end with Christ's, Christ's death, that battle. It didn't end with his resurrection or his ascension, and it, but it continues right now. And if you think about the, the state of the world today, then it's pretty apparent right now that we are in a spiritual battle. When you think of all the forces of culture arrayed against right, it's, you'd have to be blind not to see that confrontation, that battle going on right now. The past few centuries have been for sure, but the past few decades have been even more. So the very opening of Scripture, we see the fall, which is another amazing aspect of God's inspired word as he encapsulates the creation of the universe, the creation of man, the fall of man, and it's in three chapters. The first three chapters, it wraps all of that up, bam, and now we've got the fall, and now the rest of Scripture is pointing back to what happened and how to correct it going forward. So he encompasses. Man doesn't write that way, which, you know, that's another one of those great uh, inspiration proofs. Man can't write that way. There's no way a man, a, anybody could write that, that concisely, that pointed, and that targeted. So by Genesis 3, we see the conflict being set up between the offspring of the man, uh, the offspring of the woman, and the offspring of the serpent. And it's not like he's leaving this, you know, hanging, you know, edge of your seat ending, he tells you right there that he wins. This is going to happen. This is the battle. And oh, by the way, I win at the end. And then in, at the end of Revelation, we can see a very vivid picture, which is awesome. I mean, I, I love studying Revelation. It's, it's absolutely incredible, the, the imagery that goes in and all this tied in there, but we see a very vivid account of that resolution. And no surprises, God is victorious. So we see, I will, you know, just in a nutshell, and we're all mostly very familiar with that, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Obviously talking about Christ, talking about the damage done to Christ, but also the terminal damage done to the, to the serpent when Christ is victorious. But, you know, it doesn't end when Christ is raised. It ends when God decides that everything comes to, to the judgment. And just a real quick picture in Revelation, 
There, there are several different aspects, but this, this is some of the really, really cool uh, imagery. But, you know, the dragon, this is specifically talking about the offspring of the woman and Satan. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And then we, that's in chapter 12, but then by the time we reach chapter 20, ultimately it plays out with the devil and his angels being thrown into the lake of fire. So there's no question about what started it. There's no question about how it ends. There's just a question about how we play into it. So again, it's, been, it's, it's something we see throughout Scripture. It is the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of Sarah, the offspring of Hagar, the offspring that create empires that punish the offspring of other empires, mirrors of Cain and Abel and Saul and David and Christ. It's just over and over again. Mirrors in the prophets and the kings and servants and generals and women and children and on and on and on. We see that battle in a microcosm as well as the macro view throughout Scripture. It's done over and over and over again. And we see images all the way up to the point of Christ. So we know the ending. And it's easy to, to acknowledge, we know, okay, I know God wins. But we are faced with, again, that challenge. It's not just, hey, we've got smooth sailing to that final, final destination, that final resolution. It's our lives, our path, everything is fraught with obstacles. And we're faced daily with tests that make us question, maybe not question, but make us face the fact that we may know the ending, but how are we acting right now? How does that ending, how does our role affect what we're doing right now? Because it's so hard, it's so bad, it's so fill in the blank that I'm not looking past right here and seeing the ending. I'm not looking past the here and now to be able to see how I can tie these other things in to help me, help strengthen me right there. I couldn't help but think about this lesson while Barry was teaching his lesson on Sunday, just talking about faith and what that can do and what that demonstrates and how that faith is demonstrated. And I won't go into all the points that he made, but that's, you know, so much of it boils down to that. And what can we use to help strengthen our faith and leverage that in those times where we need it, where we're facing the God of this age right in my face and the, the powers that he has, the problems, the lures, whatever the case may be so that I can look beyond the here and the now and see that victory at the end and still be strengthened in the here and now, but also be a participant, an active and positive participant in the victory. So in order to be successful, and I can't help but uh, throw a Sun Tzu quote in here as well, but in order to be successful, we have to know our enemy. But Sun Tzu says, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Which is pretty true. I mean, for those that don't know, ancient tactician, military genius. We have to know ourselves. We have to know our enemy. If we choose not to know one of those or not face the reality of one of those, we will fail, period. There is, I mean, we might get lucky if we know one, but not the other, we might get lucky Sometimes, 
but do you want to roll the dice for one win in the victory that only ma the only victory that matters, or do you want to be certain? And that entails knowing your enemy, which is part of the reason why we're having this class, and so we can better know our enemy and, en and encompass who he is and what we're facing. And regardless of the, the dissimilarities between physical warfare and spiritual warfare, we know we have God on our side, which turns the tables and flips everything. Because if you take that into consideration, then everything else just falls into place. There's a quote, and I'm totally drawn a blank on who it is. It'll come to me probably by the end of the lesson. But if you fear man, you don't fear God. And if you fear God, you don't need to fear any man. So if we fear God, then, and we follow him, and we're faithful to him, then we have nothing to worry about. So we know the outcome. Again, back to Satan. So we talked about some of the names. He's known by many names. He is... We've touched on some in classes previous to this. I have some more here, but what are some other names that you can think of that Satan is known by in Scripture? Father of lies? Yep, Beelzebub. Great deceiver. What else? Prince of the power of the air. That one's top one on my list. He has lots of really descriptive names. I mean, his name alone, his name means accuser. His name is adversary. It depends on how you look at it. But he's also given the name of the ruler of this world, which is pretty frightening. He is the deceiver. We see that over and over again in Job and in Revelation. He's the father of lies, and this is what I was alluding to earlier when Jesus is basically turning the big guns back onto the Pharisees and says, you are, the, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I'm betting, I, I, I can't even imagine the looks on their faces after he leveled that one at them. Well, we know the result. They, they killed him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what other, what other aspects of the, what, we're, what we're looking at tonight from the God of this age come to mind? What, what do you think that means? What are some either examples or just something? There, there's about a hundred different ways that you can look at the God of this age. For me. Yes, sir. If, if something is your God, it's something that you put first yep. above all other things. And so for people who are focusing on this age, for mankind that focuses on this life, mm -hmm. the accomplishments of this life, the comforts of this life, or the worries and concerns of this life, anything yeah. where your focus is primarily what's happening to you in this life, then Satan is your God. Yep. Because you're focused on this age. Right. So he's the, he's the God of the people who 
focus on this area. Yep. Instead of seeing the seeing and focusing on the internal. Right. And we're gonna we're gonna definitely come back to, to that aspect here in a little bit. So does anyone else have anything? Yes, sir. Yep. So I think it's something finite, something that will have any building into it. Um, so you know, think of it as a period of time that had to be in Absolutely. So if he's the ruler of this world, if all power has been given to him in, in regards to this world, and we'll touch on that some more in a little bit, and he's the God of this age, then what does that mean? I know we've, we've touched on it, but... So do you have to be doing really, really, quote, you know, terrible things? Do you have to be living a terrible, terrible life or doing, you know, things that are super, you know, as, as people of the world would consider, you know, sinful to be following the God of this age? No. I mean, the God, and this is where it sort of starts blurring, and I, I haven't, I mean, I've been thinking about this for a while, even before this class, but, you know, I think that it is possible, and I'm pretty sure Satan isn't even necessary half the time. Once he's got somebody, and once they're in that mindset, I'm betting he can just say, I've got you, and you just, I mean, you're going to follow, we see over and over again where God is criticizing, and Jesus is criticizing, and the apostles and, and the prophets are criticizing people for their hearts, for their minds, for their decisions. They're not criticizing Satan for tempting them. They're saying, you are driving this. Now, yeah, Satan is, is the, the trigger, the initial tempter. But people, you know, once you hit a certain point, you want those things. You're, it's not, you don't even need Satan anymore. It's like, this is what I want. So you're even not even needing Satan in the equation anymore. You're so bought and paid for by him and by those desires that he could just probably just take the, take the hands off the wheel and just say, you're on your own, you're good, because he doesn't have to worry about it. So, and we talk about, and I know here I've heard more people talk about idolatry in the sense that, that I believe that, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, there's no idolatry anymore. We don't have idols well, anything you put in God's place is an idol. So, you know, there are lots and lots of things that we create. Our own gods, little g's of this age, and it doesn't have to be sinful. It could be, it could be career, it could be family, it could be any number of things. Anything you replace God with is now your idol, is now your, you know, God of this age. Any other ideas or examples? Sir. Yeah. And not to think about God. Just forget about what he said. Think about what you want. Yeah. And I 
And I think that's how he approaches every single individual. I've long said that the good of all sin is self. Mm -hmm. I cook what I want or what I think is best. If I is in that state, yeah. then I am fitting, I'm doing Satan's yeah. fitting. Uh, so to me, it's always once, once you have been deceived to put your own thoughts first instead of what God wants. Yeah. It's all over. It's, it's, and so you can be doing very good things in life, and people may look at a person and say, "They are such a great family. They do so many good things, and they give to these causes." And blah blah blah. blah. But if they have no regard for God, that's yeah. all because they that's what they want. To do. Yeah. And just like we see in, in Scripture, they've received their reward. They've gotten it. So if they're doing good stuff. They're getting their reward right now. They're not getting the reward from God for it because they're not doing it for the right reasons. <laughs> So is that just a title for him? And I, I went ahead and put up the, a couple of bullet points just so we could maintain some time. He is, you know, that, that somebody, somebody might say that that's a little grandiose, but he has power. He has a kingdom. He has a throne. And it's authentic power. And it's a real kingdom. And it's, we, we see in, again in Revelation that it's possible to dwell where Satan's throne is if you are living in, in sin. We see in Luke 4 when, when Satan is tempting Jesus, he's like, he tells Jesus, I have power over all of this. He would not say it or tempt him if he couldn't deliver on it. He could deliver that to Jesus. <coughs> all the kingdoms of the world, he could deliver. In 1 John 5, in verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. And we know we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we can be, again, couched in that protection of God, but the whole world lies in Satan's power. So again, it's not, it's not just a, a title. It's not just some you know, hyperbolic description of him, he has a terrifying amount of power and a ter terrifying amount of influence. And many people either actively, and you see a lot of this in, in different parts of the world, different parts of the U.S. even, uh, actively pursuing that or passively. They want what he's got. And whether they admit that they're, you know, going after it because of Satan, you know, most people will not say that. But those offspring pictures that we see throughout Scripture, we see manifest every day in our lives. We've got the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Ephesians 2, 2, we see you know, references to the sons of disobedience. So we have you know, so more examples than we can possibly put into this um, class about people that willingly follow him. But then there's also the aspect that he has demons that follow him. He's the prince of demons in Matthew 9, verse 34. And we see in Acts that people are just drawn to him and what he offers in Acts 26. So this, this brings up, so bringing it back around to, to God's plan. So there's the elephant in the room. Why didn't God just obliterate evil at the beginning? God's all-powerful. 
why not just go and it's gone. I mean, he could have done that. There's nothing that God is outside of God's power. He could have, the instant that Satan rebelled, he could have, uh, whatever, he could have vaporized them all, made them uncreated. I have no idea, but he could have done something right then about it, but he didn't. And this is a totally different question than why does God allow bad things to happen? This is why did God allow evil to exist versus snuff it out and obliterate it? Yeah, true. But he could have reacted if he wanted to and made it go away. So he must have had a reason for doing so. How does God choose to define himself? Love. What else? Mercy. Mercy. He cannot lie. Yep. Yep. What's another one? And it starts with an L. Light. That is an awesome study right there, just in and of itself. Because of the characteristics of light as a as a part of this creation and God defining himself by that, it's awesome. If, I mean, just from a physics standpoint, for, it, it is amazing. So, but I'm not going to go into that right here. So love. Love and light. There's so many descriptors that he chooses to use for himself. Not once does he say, I'm just all powerful. He is, and he demonstrates that, but he wants to be defined by love and light and mercy and patience. That is mind-boggling when you think about it. But just real quick, just looking in Deuteronomy. Know therefore that the Lord your God is love, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments for thousands of generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. And light in First John, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in, walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light and he is in, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So God chooses to define himself by characteristics that tie directly into what he does for us. He could have obliterated Satan. He could have done, I mean, he could have been chosen to define himself by power. Again, that's how man would define him. That's how man defined all of the gods. They are, they're, the power is what is focused on, the power, and they're evil. They're terrible, terrible creations for the most part, too. So he could have chosen himself, he could have chosen to define himself by all of these other things that he has at his disposal. But he didn't. He chose love and light and mercy. And in doing so, when, when evil came into being and when the fall happened and, and when things happened that we don't really have very good insight into, but we knew before, we know because he tells us before creation happened, he knew what was going to happen and he had a plan on how to rectify it. So he wanted to demonstrate who he was 
before he'd even created the creation that was going to rebel against him. So he set the stage. It was going to be material versus spiritual. We've talked a little bit about this before. Physical desires versus spiritual desires. This age, the God of this age versus the God of love and light and mercy. But where do we come in? So what is competing for our attention, for our loyalty or fealty? So God has a plan. But we have the physical things and the lusts and the desires and the phys- the, all the things that are of the God of this age that are trying to pull us away from what God wants us to be. So in light of the fact that we have a choice, what do you think our choices demonstrate? So here we are, power, relatively powerless in the grand scheme of things, but we have power because God is on our side. What do our choices demonstrate? God of this age versus the true God and us making a choice. Yep. To me, it's a difference between being selfless and being selfish. There's two definitions of our choice. Yep. Selfless, living for Christ, doing his desires, selfish. Right. So in so knowing that there are ramifications and we are demonstrating things about ourselves when we're doing that vis-a-vis God's plan, how do you think our choices tie into it? And again, I don't want to be, you know, asking you to read, you know, read, read my mind because I know that's impossible uh, when anybody is, is um, standing in front of a group. But knowing who we are and what we have at our disposal and knowing the forces that are arrayed against one another, knowing who we are, just by being here, by being, you know, purported followers of God, followers of Christ. We want to demonstrate our fealty to God, but in doing so, in making those choices to not follow the God of this age, we're actually, again, I mentioned it a little while ago, we help God. God is, through us, demonstrating that He is good that He is love, that He is all those things that He desires to be defined by. Because what is the choice we're making? We're deciding to forsake the things that are within my grasp, these physical things that I can do and and achieve and satisfy and whatever. They're right here in my face. The God of this age is giving them to me here but I'm choosing to forego those for something that I can't see. Which is, if you look at it from an outside perspective, would be insane. We're doing it because we have faith in something we can't see. By making those choices, and it's not just demonstrating to one another, we're demonstrating to powers and principalities and rulers and authorities 
that we love God so much that we will choose not to satisfy ourselves with the things of the God of this age, the things that I can achieve that are right here, right now, right, they exist, they're here. I'm foregoing those for something that doesn't, that can't be touched. I am the faith that we demonstrated in making those choices is part of the battle. It's part of that spiritual battle. We're proving who God is by doing something that makes no sense from a worldly perspective. We are foregoing the things that are within our grasp for something that we can't see, something that we've been promised because we trust God. That's why Satan has so much power, because he can give you something yeah. right now. It's right there. Whatever you want. Just reach out and grab it. Even though it's not going to satisfy you. You get it, and it's like the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. But it doesn't, it's right there, and we're, we're foregoing that. And that's where I think, knowing that and knowing that, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll try to speed up just a little bit, but this is where I was saying earlier that just looking at the big picture and being able to put that in perspective when we're struggling and realizing it's not just, okay, I'm being challenged right now. My faith is being challenged. My life is being challenged. My patience, all these things, whatever the case may be, these things that I personally struggle, for, struggle with, whatever it is, I'm going to focus on not just, this isn't just about me and my relationship with God, with God. This is me demonstrating who God is by making these choices as well. It's bigger than we are. It's bigger than I am. It's bigger than we could ever possibly imagine. We have a glimmer, but it's huge. And I think, you know, I know for me being able to say, okay, this is I'm not making these choices for no reason. I'm not making them in this tiny little vacuum that's nobody's ever going to know about, nobody's ever going to know in the future. It doesn't matter. That impact is so much more broad and long-lasting and impactful than I think we can truly envision or understand that I think it can give us, could give us the strength to reject the God of this world, the God of this age. We're rejecting him. We're rejecting what he's offering for something that's <clears throat> infinitely better, but unseen. That faith that we're demonstrating, again, we're demonstrating it to each other. We're strengthening each other, but we're demonstrating it to things we can't understand by saying God is so good that I'm doing this. And that's how we, that's how we fight the battle. We prove who God is by rejecting his devices his temptations to exchange for something that is incalculable, but we can't even envision, which is another part of the, the equation. We can't even truly understand what we're looking forward to, but we're choosing to trust God because he's given us in our language and in words that we can understand something that we can tie our brains to, but it's going to blow past anything that we can understand in our physical bodies right now. So just being able to focus on the promises and who God is. We're able to prove who God is. We're proving who God is by our actions, which is pretty awesome. I can have an impact on that. I'm actually doing something that is demonstrating who God is, not just who I believe in.
And we don't have time to go through all the scriptures that I have here on the next slide, but we are through that faith, through that participation in the battle, through that trust and confidence. We're participants in that victory. We're not just, oh, we get some spoils. We are equal participants in that victory, and it's just amazing. And, you know, these, these scriptures do an incredible job. You know, Romans, he talks about Satan being crushed under our feet, not his feet, our feet. We crush Satan through our actions, through our trust, and through our um, love of God. In Ephesians, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We, we talked about that, you know, many, many times, but, you know, we are, again, demonstrating who God is. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And for this reason, you know, we can make it through anything. We, we get, you know, reinforcement after reinforce, reinforcement after reinforcement in Scripture based on our trusting in Him. And so it's a reciprocal. We trust in Him. We demonstrate who He is. And through that trust in Him, we can make it through the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. I appreciate your participation. And sorry, I didn't quite get to make it through everything, but pretty much standard, I guess.